Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, in the third part of a sermon series called Reclaiming a Passion for Heaven, with this message from September 22nd titled Home Forever. We are in the third part of a four-part preaching series, which I have entitled, Reclaiming a Passion for Heaven. And my challenge to you in this series is to live with heaven on your mind, because your outlook on the most important things in this life spring from your understanding or your misunderstanding of heaven. If you embrace a biblical understanding of heaven, you will be able to face whatever may come your way as you journey this earth. I began this series by saying, based upon Solomon's words in the book of Ecclesiastes, that God has put eternity in men's hearts, that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. In other words, there are continual whispers in our ears that there is more to the life than the here and now. And these whispers are like magnets intended to draw us to God and to his son, Jesus like magnets intended to draw us to Christ so that we can experience salvation through his name. Last Sunday, we considered what happens to us the moment we die, the moment that we draw our last breath. And we determined from scripture that what happens to us after we die depends upon what happens before we die. The Bible classifies the whole human race into two broad categories, the saved and the lost. The saves are those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and the lost are those who haven't. And what happens to the saved is radically different from what happens to the lost. The story Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 teaches us that the soul of the lost is doomed for Hades, a place of continual torment. While the soul of the saved is escorted into paradise, into the presence of God, a place of exquisite pleasure and delight. The bodies of both the saved and the lost are then placed in the grave, awaiting the final resurrection. Now, one thing that I failed to point out last Sunday, and I think this is very crucial, is that the rich man did not go to Hades because he was rich. And Lazarus did not go to paradise because he was poor. Rather, as the context would indicate, the rich man trusted in his riches rather than God, while Lazarus trusted in God, even though he lived in poverty. Wealth or lack of it is not the determining factor regarding one's eternal destiny. The determining factor is whether or not one has trusted Jesus for salvation. However, as I previously mentioned, Paradise right now is not the final heaven, and Hades is not the final hell. Both paradise and Hades has distinct features and characteristics of its ultimate counterparts, but they are not the final destination of the departed. This morning, I would have us consider the final destination of those who have trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Randy Alcorn in his book writes, people usually think of heaven as a place Christians go when they die. 
A better definition explains that heaven is God's central dwelling place, the location of his throne from which he rules the universe. Many don't realize that the present pre-resurrection heaven and future post-resurrection heaven are located in different places. The exact location of the present heaven is unknown, but we're told the future heaven will be located on the new earth. The present heaven is a place of transition between believers past lives on earth and future resurrection lives on the new earth. Life in the present heaven, which theologians call the intermediate heaven, is better by far than living here on earth under the curse, according to Paul. But it's not our final destination. He continues, will we live in heaven forever? The answer depends on our definition of heaven. Will we be with the Lord forever? Absolutely. Will we always be with God in the same place heaven is now? No. He goes on to say, in the present heaven, God's people are in Christ's presence, free of sin and suffering and enjoy great happiness. The psalmist says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. But they're still looking forward to their bodily resurrection and permanent relocation to the new earth. So yes, after death, we'll always be in heaven, but not in the same place or the same condition. So in light of that, I would have you consider the promise given concerning a new heaven and a new earth. If you read the Bible carefully, you will discover that throughout scripture are little promises that God is going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, we read, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. You see, Isaiah envisions a time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that it will last forever. He says it will be before me forever And earlier in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, he also reports that this new heaven and this new earth will be so wonderful, so completely beautiful that it will cause us to forget what we know about the earth as it is today. And according to second Peter chapter three, verse 13, this new heaven and this new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells. Now, over in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, the writer quotes a psalm, and he says this, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The writer of Hebrews says one day God is going to take this world and like a garment, he is going to roll it up and then he's going to change everything. Then I would have you notice what John says in revelation chapter 21 in verse one and in verse five, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. John sees in a vision that new heaven and that new earth. That is a promise that is given throughout the scriptures. God has said that one day he is going to make all things new. 
Now, when you put all that together, all that information together from the Old and New Testament, you discover that the new heaven and the new earth will not appear until a number of things take place. A number of things have to happen first. And we don't have time to delve into the details of each event, but let me briefly outline what I believe the series of events will be based upon my study of scripture that will take place before the new heaven and the new earth appear. First of all, the rapture of the church will take place. Christ will return. This event will be one of great drama as his coming will be accompanied with a loud command from what will sound like the voice of an archangel. This will be accompanied by the trumpet call of God. Then there will be a resurrection of their of those who have died in Christ, at which time believers will receive their resurrected bodies, bodies which, we are, which are described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as bodies which are incorruptible. He describes them as being immortal, imperishable. And at that time, the soul of the departed will be reunited with their resurrected body. And then following that rapture, there will be a time of seven, seven years of tribulation. And at the end of those seven years, there will be a great, great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Then there will be ushered in a period of time of, for 1,000 years called the millennium. At the end of the millennium, there will be a final rebellion and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment will take place. And all those who have rejected Christ throughout history will stand at the great white throne judgment to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And all of the evil of the earth will be judged and sent to the lake of fire. Following these events, the promise given throughout scripture concerning the new heaven and the new earth will come to fulfillment and to fruition. But how will this promise be fulfilled? How will a new heaven and a new earth come about? Well, I would also have you notice from scripture, the purification for the new heaven and the new earth. And for that, we go to second Peter chapter three, verses 10 to 12. <clears throat> Listen to what Peter writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What Peter describes is going to take place immediately after the millennial period. After the thousand year reign of Christ on this earth, God is going to do a purifying work on the earth. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says that the heavens and the earth will pass away? Is God going to give up on this world, totally wipe it out and start all over from scratch? That word burned up in this passage of scripture does not appear that way in the early Greek manuscripts. In fact, if you have a copy of the new international version, it translates that phrase to mean uh, laid bare. The actual word in the text conveys the idea of being uncovered or op laid open for exposure. So in other words, Peter is not talking about destroying the earth, 
but rather about purifying the earth. The basic materials of the earth structure will not be annihilated, but will undergo tremendous process of disintegration as Peter's language implies here. Then God will once more exercise his creative power and he will create and make the new heaven and the new earth. Again, let me quote Randy Elkhorn. He says, for many years as a Bible student and later as a pastor, I didn't think in terms of renewal or restoration. Instead, I believed God was going to destroy the earth, abandon his original design and plan and start over by implementing a new plan in an unearthly heaven. Only in the past 15 years have my eyes been open to what scripture has been saying all along. And remember when we did that survey of scripture, we said that, that God promised a new heaven and a new earth, that John saw that in his vision, a new heaven coming down. So in what sense is a new heaven and a new earth new? Well, the, ner- the word new as used here describes something that is not new in time, but rather in quality. So in the case of the new heaven and the new earth, it's a word that describes not something that never existed before, but rather something that has been in existence, but has been renovated and refreshed from the ruin and decay of the past. In other words, what Peter is telling us in that moment of time, at the end of the millennium, as God is preparing for the eternal state, He is going to do a refreshing of the earth. He's going to destroy all the evidence of decay, disobedience, the disease, and evidence of sin. But God is not going to destroy the world. He's not going to annihilate the world in which you and I currently live. Rather, he's going to purify it. He's going to make it new in the sense of being fresh. He's going to make it new in the sense of purifying it from all corruption and decay. I sort of picture this like a house renovation. When a person buys a, a, hole that, a home that has been subject to decay and, and, and devaluation, so often what they do is they sort of gut it, they call it. You know, they, and they start, they, they have that basic shell, the basic frame, but they start all over in the renovation project. And in, in some ways that describes what God is going to do. Anthony Hokima says, if God would have to annihilate the present world, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present earth that God could do nothing with it, but blot it out totally in existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated and God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth on which Satan deceived mankind and finally banished from it all the results of Satan's evil machinations. Again, quoting Randy Alcorn, he says, but God doesn't throw away his handiwork and start from scratch. Instead, he uses the same canvas to repair and make more beautiful the painting that was marred by the vandal. The vandal doesn't get the satisfaction of destroying his rival's masterpiece. On the contrary, God makes an even greater masterpiece out of what his enemy sought to destroy. Isn't this what God did once before? Consider the flood in Noah's day. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, Peter makes the point that God did not annihilate the earth with a flood in Noah's time. The flood was certainly destructive, but it did not obliterate the world. 
God preserved Noah and his family so that they could re-inhabit the world that was made ready for them by the cleansing and purification of the flood. So David Jeremiah says in the same way, God will not cause the present earth to cease to exist by the fire that will come at the end of the age. The fire will have a much greater purifying effect upon the world than water did, but it will not destroy the world. And just as Noah and his family were protected in the ark, God's people will be protected in the new Jerusalem, which will following the purification settle upon the new earth. So in other words, heaven will come to earth. That will be our ark of safety during the purification of the earth. So we have the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And we, the Bible talks about the purification of the earth for the new heaven and the new earth. And I want to share with you some of the peculiarities of the new heaven and the new earth. Some things which are going to be unique to the final destination of all believers. For that, I take you to Revelation chapter 21 and I read verses 1 to 7. Excuse me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this and this heritage and I will be his God. And he will be my son. What a beautiful description of what awaits us as believers in Jesus Christ. What the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. I would first point out that it will be a place of peace. John makes mention in verse one, that there will no longer be any sea. And that's a rather interesting detail that John includes in this passage. And I think it does mean that the way we live ecologically in the new world will be totally different than the way we live now. But I think there's also some symbolic meaning in this phrase. R.C. Spruill points out that in the mind of the Jewish people, everything about the sea was negative. Now that's not so much so for you and me today. When we think of the sea, we think of a vacation and holidays and we think of snorkeling and sailing and doing all of those kind of things and cruises. But that was not so for the Jewish people. They, everything about the sea was negative. The Mediterranean Sea bordering their land was rocky. It was unfit to establish any sea trade. Marauders would come up from the sea and attack them. Violent storms would come off of the sea. In their mind's eye, the sea was a picture of chaos, darkness, and confusion. On the other hand, The river for the Jewish people was a source of refreshment and blessing and prosperity. 
When one spoke of a river, excuse me, when one spoke of a river, positive images filled their minds. We see that contrast in Psalm 46. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear the what? Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. But then he goes on to say, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the most high. The psalmist contrasts the chaos, the confusion, the fear of the sea with the peace and tranquility and pleasure of the river. And in John's vision, there is no sea. But we read in Revelation chapter 22, a continuation of, of his vision. And he showed me what? A river of the water of life. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. What then is a message about heaven in the first verse of Revelation 21? God is simply saying, you will never experience chaos and confusion again. Only peace and blessing. All of us have faced or will face tumultuous times during our journey on this earth. We've all had times when peace evaded us, when fear overwhelmed us. But when God establishes the new heaven and the new earth, no longer will believers face such struggles. The battle will be over. Fear will be overcome because heaven is a place of peace. But it's also a place of God's presence. John continued to describe the new heaven by saying, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with man and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a place of meeting where God entered into the events of man. In the New Testament, in reference to Jesus, John wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt can be translated tabernacled or pitched his tent. God, Jesus tabernacled amongst us. He pitched his tent amongst us. In other words, Jesus made his home among mankind. He was not absent or far removed. In John's vision, he sees a tabernacle of God among men and God dwelling among them. Although the Bible assures us that God is always with us wherever we go, we often struggle with the sense of his absence. You and I know the promises contained in the Bible where Jesus says, I am low, I am with you always. Or God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We have that assurance that God is always with us. But so often we, we struggle with a sense of his absence. How many times have we cried out, God, where are you? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in my distress? For us, God often appears to be fleeting and transient and unstable. But part of the problem is that we are called to trust a God that we cannot see, that we cannot touch. However, in heaven, God will be permanently among us. There will be no temple needed as a place to meet God will continually be in his presence and the light of his glory. His glory will illumine heaven and there will be no need for the sun or the moon. We will be in the presence of, our, of God, our father, Jesus, his son, and the Holy Spirit forever. But John goes on to say that it's going to be a place free from pain. 
listen to these wonderful and I think soothing words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There is probably no gesture more intimate than the wiping away of tears. The touching of the face, the stroke of the hand communicates that all will be okay. Think back to your childhood days. Can you recall a time when, when your dad holding you, you, clasped, you collapsed into your father's arms in tears? And what did he do? He gently took his hand and he wiped away those tears. And the brush of his hand across your face told you that everything was going to be okay. But when we wipe away tears, they come back. We cry again. But that won't be the case with God. The brush of his hand across our face will wipe away those tears of pain forever. Why is that? Because there won't be any reason for tears of pain. There won't be any more death. No more funeral services. There's not going to be any mourning because we will never experience loss anymore. And there won't be any more pain. Just stop and think. Physical, mental, emotional suffering will come to an end. The one who sits on the throne will make all things new. Perhaps you're here today and you are struggling with physical pain. Or maybe you have been overcome with mental pain or emotional pain. When God establishes that new heaven and that new earth, all of that will be gone. There are so many more things we could say about the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be a place of blamelessness, free from sin. It's going to be a place of brilliance, beauty which defies imagination. A place of blessedness, overwhelming joy. A place of bounty, no shortage of provisions. And a place of busyness, ministering where we will be ministering before the throne of God. All of this means, according to Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, that it will be a place where the curse will be reversed. John writes, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servant will worship him. What is a curse? It's not what you hear at your workplace. It's not the language of the street. The curse is a particular event that took place in the Garden of Eden because man violated God's commands. God cursed the earth. We read of it in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is a ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The curse included the curse of the ground, but also the curse of death. All of that will be reversed. Death and decay. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will no longer be any death. As a result, no mourning or crying. And the work that we engage in the new heaven and the new earth will be work that will be joyful and fulfilling and worthwhile 
And we'll be rendering it in honor and glory to God. So this is where history is headed. This is where all believers in Jesus are going to a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know what that means to you, but if you are a believer, it ought to change your outlook and your perspective on life. Dan Schaefer writes, we've often been led to believe that entering heaven is much like entering a funeral home or library or great European cathedral, at least in atmosphere. It is pictured often as a place of sanctified and reverent silence interrupted only by the droning sounds of the singing of ancient hymns. The activity level would approach that of a monastery, but nothing could be further from the truth. So often when you talk to people today, they have that misconception of what heaven is going to be like, what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. And there are those who will say, well, if heaven is, heaven is going to be boring, I'd rather be parting in hell. But what a dis- disillusional thought. Heaven is going to be rewarding and exciting. As believers, when we enter our eternal and final destination, we are going to be overwhelmed with an experience so vibrant, so alive, so colorful, so enchanting. Last Sunday, we took a trip down to Madge Lake, and as we were driving down Highway 83, the brilliant colors on either side of the highway, just, just unbelievable. And as we got to the lake, it was just calm. It was like a, a glass, sea of glass. And the reflection of the trees on that lake, on the water, was just overwhelming. It was breathtaking. There are other sights and sounds in our, it's other sights in our valley which are similar. When you come down from Wellman Lake and you take that turn and you have that panoramic view of the valley, it's breathtaking. We think that those scenes are so amazing. But the moment we enter the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to be so amazed. As I said, the experience is going to be so vibrant, so alive, so colorful, so enchanting. David Jeremiah writes, the new heaven and the new earth will be a place characterized by laughter without tears, life without death, singing without mourning, contentment without crying, and pleasure without paying. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be there. And our loving Heavenly Father will be there. And the blessed Holy Spirit will be there. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth crowned by a resplendent city called the New Jerusalem. That will be the culmination of our redemption. The culmination of our salvation, the full inheritance of what God promised for us through Jesus Christ. And what a day that will be. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the promise of the new heaven and the new earth and how it fills us with hope and with gladness, with joy, knowing what awaits us. And Father, we thank you that it will also be a day of reunion when we will be forever with our loved ones, those who have died in Christ, who have gone before. But Lord, we, above all, we know that we will be in your presence 
serving you night and day with joy and with gladness, singing praises around your throne to the one who is worthy, to the one who has all authority, to the one who rules with grace and love and goodness. And so, Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning who has not entered into a personal relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that today they would see their need for a Savior, that they would confess their sin, be restored in their relationship with you, and enter into the hope of eternal life. Father, if there is someone here this morning where heaven isn't a part of their, that they know Christ, but they, they live as if heaven isn't going to happen. Well, I pray that you would just instill with them that, that hope and that, that expectation that we have. And Father, that it would change the lives of all of us in the way we live, that we would serve you wholeheartedly, the one who ransomed us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Church or search on your favorite podcast app.